It's Wednesday, November 23rd, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Did you see the Saudi upset of the Argentines? Those plucky upstarts, those lovable underdogs, those chopper uppers of journalists, the Saudis. I actually did get an involuntary thrill when I saw that the third best team in the world, according to FIFA rankings, succumbed by a score of two to one to the 51st best team, Saudi Arabia. They're the second worst team at the World Cup. And that goal, that go-ahead goal, beautiful. Shot taken, goal! That from Fox's broadcast. But that momentary feeling, that thrill, that adrenalized rush of sports, surprise, triumph, upset, it is exactly why we let Qatar get the games. Well, that and the bribes. But the glory of the game is always going to overwhelm any inklings of discontent. On this week's Not Even Mad, in fact, we have a whole World Cup segment in which I take the general stance that, well, this is the business that we've chosen. What is the use of being mad at Qatar when we go there, we send our teams there, we buy our beer there in little Budweiser leper colonies, we wear our rainbow flags to protest, and then those rainbow flags get us banned from Stadia, but then we get apologized to if our complaint goes viral. There are a hundred nations in the world more free than Qatar, according to the Democracy Index of The Economist and Freedom House. There are 150 more free and fair than Saudi Arabia, but that's the only country hosting the World Cup, and the other ones, the country that pulled perhaps the most thrilling upset in World Cup history. And that is the only upset I want to experience, to be mad or bummed out or anxious over the moral implications of world soccer and as it relates to world politics. Look, I say, if it happens naturally, honor those feelings, right? I am a little conflicted, or at least I intellectually know it's true that this World Cup is benefiting a rather poor country when it comes to their record of human rights. But I don't think you should feel bad about not feeling terribly bad. Please don't make gestures towards, you know, I know I should feel bad. But boycotts only work when the boycotted product is replaceable. There's kind of nothing we soccer fans or casual soccer fans can do when it comes to the World Cup. I will state this as PESCA's rule. The success of consumer boycotts are entirely correlated to the elasticity of the good being shunned. The World Cup finals are unique. I know plenty of people watching or some who even went to this World Cup who say, well, yes, of course, I'm conflicted, but I love soccer or I want to bond with my kids and take them there or I cannot not watch my beloved Canarinho or El Tri or whatever your team is. And that's fine. Enjoy it fully. Celebrate the beautiful game, which to remind you is soccer, football, not geopolitics. On the show today, I am so pleased, thankful would be the word, to feature... As the rest of this entire episode, the return of Chris Malamphy. Chris does the Hit Parade podcast. He writes the Why Is This Song number one column for Slate. And he's appeared on season one of The Gist over a dozen times. We've been trying to restart our regular feature in which we take a year and recount the number one songs of that year. And so we have done so. The year, 1992. The guest, Chris Malamphy. The time, right after this. And now, for the first time in too long, Chris Malamphy is back 
to discuss the number one hits of, in this case, 1992. Chris has long come on the gist. We pick a year. We talk about all or almost all the songs that went to number one. We have a good time doing it. We learn something along the way. We grow as people and a theme or a reflection of the zeitgeist emerges. Force there, shoehorned in by Chris, you be the judge. Chris is a chart analyst, pop critic, host of the Hit Parade podcast. He writes, why is this song number one for Slate? And he will be answering that question for us today. Chris, hello, welcome back. Thank you, Mike. My gosh, it's so good to be back. It's been way too long. Isn't it? And this whole time I've been thinking about being back and getting back and the fact that Baby Got Back, which we'll get to because (laughs) 1992 is the year for that. But why don't we start with the first, um, if, um, by the way, let me say, if there is a theme to 1992, it's big, strong choruses that give the song its name. There is no mistaking what are the names of some of these songs. Fair, fair point. Uh, The first number one song is a Michael Jackson song. Black or White, was this a holdover from 91? It was indeed a holdover from 91, the first single from Michael's Dangerous album, which was the big deal release at the end of 1991 for the holiday season of 1991. Um, Some of your listeners may be familiar with the fact that in January of 1992, uh, in a bit of a... um, changing of the guard moment the dangerous album was knocked out of number one on the billboard album chart by nirvana's nevermind nevermind of course did not generate a number one hit it generated a number six hit with smells like teen spirit but nonetheless michael jackson you know a lot has been made of that nirvana versus michael moment which was really an accident of timing and the fact is michael did just fine this is technically the only number one hit from uh the dangerous album but michael went on to score another five or six hits from this album uh most of them top tens remember the time will you be there in the closet um so you know, it was virtually as hit-packed as his bad and thriller albums had been in the 80s. So Michael continuing his reign, uh, in fact, not just continuing his reign, but technically launching his reign as the so-called king of pop. The term king of pop was coined by Sony Music as a marketing term. Really? So yeah, Michael, Michael becomes the king of pop here. The next number one song was by Color Me Bad, All For Love. And they remind me of a group that's going to have a massive number one uh, later in the year, Boys to Men, End of the Road. Uh, Am I characterizing uh, Color Me Bad correctly, would you say? Yeah, broadly you are. I mean, they are... In effect, an R&B boy band, uh, they broke out in the summer of 1991 with the number two hit, so it didn't go all the way, uh, I Want to Sex You Up, uh, which is probably- No TikTok, you don't stop. There you go. You can still sing the hook. I was just about to say, it's easily their most memorable song. Really a a terrific record. And I got to say, I like All for Love too. All for Love is kind of this ersatz Motown- poppy Jackson 5-esque song. It's got a great hook. Yeah. 
They do some nice dancing in the video. This was Color Me Bad's last number one hit, really their last big hit. But they made the most of their, you know, 15 minutes of fame. And uh, this is not a bad pop record. So there is a theme to the first three number ones. There's Black or White. There's Color Me Bad. And the third song to hit number ones, first lyrics... I can't light no more of your darkness. All my pictures seem to fade to black and white. Tell us what that song is. That song would be Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me, uh, uh-huh. written by Bernie Taupin and Elton John back in the early 70s, originally a number two hit for Elton in 1974. Here it becomes a number one hit in a live cover by Elton's friend, George Michael, duetting with Elton himself and bringing Elton back to number one for the first time in quite a long time. If you don't count Elton's contribution to the Dion and Friends single, That's What Friends Are For in 1985-86, which did go to number one, but technically, very technically didn't count as an Elton John record. Um, Elton had not been at number one on the Hot 100 since Don't Go Breaking My Heart, his duet with Kiki D way back in 1976. So this was... So I'm still staying standing and sad songs those weren't that era didn't produce a number one uh it didn't produce a number one it produced several top 10 and top 20 hits i'm still standing just missed the top 10 uh sad songs say so much i believe was a top 10 possibly even top five record i guess that's why they call it the blues was a big top five record for elton in the 80s uh but no elton john really had to kind of rebuild his career if you want to take it back in 1976 as i discussed in a hit parade episode uh in which i compared the careers of george michael and elton john they were closeted gay men who had to you know deal with coming out uh in their own particular ways and in 1976 in a rolling stone cover story elton came out of the closet uh and saw his sales plummet for the next half decade. So really the 80s, the entire decade of the 80s was one long rebuilding period for Elton where even a record as catchy as I'm Still Standing could miss the top 10 and even a record as good as, I guess that's why they call it the blues, couldn't go all the way to number one. So for George Michael to bring Elton back to number one is kind of a poetic moment because George is very much an inheritor of the Elton John mantle, if you will. We did chronologically skip a touchstone a just cultural artifact that we can't understand the period without really understanding. I'm Too Sexy by Right Said Fred. Would you put it in the realm of novelty music? I might. First of all, it's interesting that Wright Said Fred's I'm Too Sexy goes to number one directly after the cover of Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me by two queer icons, Elton John and George Michael. George Michael's still in the closet as of 1992, by the way. Um, I'm Too Sexy is itself kind of a queer anthem. Uh, at least one member of Wright Said Fred is uh, gay and out, which in and of itself is kind of remarkable about a number one record in 1992. To, have, to be an out gay person with a number one record was a fairly rare thing. 
Here's the other thing about I'm Too Sexy. We're going to talk a little bit later about Baby Got Back. Arguably, there are two, and I use this term very loosely, novelty records that go mm-hmm. to number one in the year 1992. And arguably, these two so-called novelty records, which people want to flick away as you know a fun little comedy trifle, are the, the two singles with the greatest legacy of any of the number one hits of this year. Here's what I mean when it comes to I'm Too Sexy. That rhythm of that chorus, I'm too sexy for my shirt, too sexy for my shirt. That turns out to be a very brain sticky cadence that has been interpolated by multiple songs in the 21st century. And frankly, if you want my opinion, I don't feel like Wright Said Fred should own that cadence. Um, It seems a little ridiculous to me, but in the post-blurred lines legal regime that we're in. Uh-huh. A lot of multi-platinum artists have felt the need to preemptively give Right Said Fred credit when they yeah. use that cadence. There's yeah, a track I've, on- I've seen the Fairbrass is credited on all these songs. And I'm like, is that from Right Said Fred too? I, yes. I, I literally can't believe that. I mean, if Alfred Lord Tennyson were alive, he would make <laughs> so much money on Half a League, Half a League, Half a League Onward. It's just a rhythm, a basic human rhythm, but they own Bum, 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 bum. Wow. Exactly. So to name two number one hits uh, from the last, let's say, six years that have borrowed this cadence, uh, Taylor Swift's Look What You Made Me Do from the fall of 2017 from her Reputation album. Swift did not mess around. She gave the Fairbrass Brothers songwriting credit for Look What You Made Me Do. Look What You Made Me Do. Look What You Just Made Me Do, which just echoes the rhythm of I'm too sexy for my shirt, too sexy for my shirt. Um, yeah. And not even exactly, by the way, just close. Not even exactly, closely. <laughs> yeah. And then about four years later on his number one hit, Way Too Sexy, Drake more overtly interpolated I'm Too Sexy uh, and actually borrowed lyrics from the song. If you want my opinion, I think Drake very clearly owed the Fairbrass Brothers for Way Too Sexy because that is a very clear cover slash interpolation. I think the jury is out as to whether Taylor Swift needed to pay up for Look What You Made Me Do, but they both paid up, so go figure. Well, I don't want to jump Mariah Carey, but I also don't want to save the best for last. So let's get right to Baby Got Back. By the way, those were three number ones. Jump Mariah Carey's I'll Be There and Save the Best for Last by Vanessa Williams. But yeah, we're talking about it. Okay. I mean, her butt. It's just so big. I can't believe it's just so round. It's like out there. I mean, gross. Look. She's just so black. I like big butts and I cannot lie. You other brothers can't deny that when a girl walks in with an itty bitty waist and a round thing in your face, you get sprung. Wanna pull up tough, cause you notice that butt was stuck. Deep in the jeans she's wearing. I'm hooked and I can't stop staring. Oh, baby. I wanna Take me to Sir Mix-a-Lot, uh, Order of the British Realm. Uh, his anaconda was just as famous as he was. Tell me about the meteoric rise of this song, Nay Anthem. I mean, what more can you say about Baby Got Back? It is a legendary hip-hop record. Yes, it's a novelty hit. Yes, it's comical. But you want to talk about hits that have a legacy. Arguably, Baby Got Back, and I'm still reading interviews to this degree to this day, single-handedly changed the understanding in the fashion industry, in the culture, about women's bodies. Sir Mix-a-Lot was rebelling against the skinny model ideal for beauty uh, and talking yeah. about how his amply uh, 
postereared, for lack of a better term, his calipigeon girlfriend was as worthy of uh, praise and, frankly, objectification as any skinny model. And, I mean, the lyrics are just a parade of awesome. One other note I want to make about Baby Got Back and about 1992 in general. 1992 is the first full calendar year in which Billboard has changed its methodology for how it calculates this chart. I've probably talked about this on previous episodes of The Gist, but in 91... This is why Billboard, we have you. <laughs> this right? is the best. In Go. 91, <laughs> Billboard started using a system called the SoundScan system to tally music sales at the retail counter. And on the radio side, they started using something called BDS, Broadcast Data Systems. Really, you don't even have to remember that name. What you need to know is that basically they were using a primitive version of what is now in your pocket, Shazam audio fingerprint technology so that they were actually counting the number of times songs were getting played on radio stations and not trusting the radio stations to tell them how many times songs were mm. being played and not trusting the retailers to tell them how many CDs something sold. They actually had a piece count, accurate data for the first time. And the reason I bring this up in the context of Baby Got Back, it is kind of inconceivable that Baby Got Back spends a full month at number one if SoundScan doesn't come along. A record like that, it might be morning show fodder, it might be considered a novelty record by retailers, but they're probably not going to report it as their number one record, given both its hip-hop cred and its novelty status, unless SoundScan is accurately tallying the tremendous platinum-level sales and the you know, subsequent huge airplay that Baby Got, Back Baby Got Back generated in the summer of 1992. So you can regard this as a kind of a triumph for better data on the charts. Hold on, little girl or little boy or big ones too. Mr. Big did have a number one song with that hit. And we shall get to so many more of the number one hits of 1992 when we return with Chris Malamphy right after this. We're back with Chris Malamphy, host of the Hit Parade podcast. He's counting down the number one hits in 1992. Madonna, that used to be my playground, was actually a number one that year for a week. But let's go to this one. Chris Cross's Jump topped the charts for eight weeks. Why was America dressing backwards and jumping to jump? I mean, because that song is a catchy banger. It's, uh, you know, produced by uh, super producer Jermaine Dupree, uh, a, you know, rising force in hip hop and pop in the early 90s. He was kind of Puff Daddy before Puff Daddy. Uh, he was an impresario who made stars out of folks like DeBrat and in this case, Criss Cross, the duo of Chris Mac Daddy Kelly and Chris Daddy Mac Smith, uh, who were all of 12 and 13 when the album totally crossed out top the charts and generated a massive hit with Jump built around a sample of the Jackson 5. Um, you know, it was a good year for jumping 1992. You may know that uh, 92 was also the year of Jump Around by House of Pain, the number three hit. So in general, folks were jumping in 1992. Not that they weren't jumping in 1984, but they were really jumping in 1992. And again, with the charts more accurate now in the wake of SoundScan and broadcast data systems, 
you can imagine a poppy rap track like Jump going to number one, even under the old system, but under the new system for it to stay at number one for two solid months, as Jump did, really indicated the power and the strength of hip-hop-derived pop at this time. I will say this about the House of Pain song, Jump Around. There is that lyric about him having more rhymes than the Bible has psalms, which is a nice rhyme, but the Bible only has 150 psalms, so it's not that impressive a brag, is what I'm saying. Maybe it was a different time when the braggadocio of rap artists wasn't totally out of control. Yeah, that's an achievable number of rhymes. I agree <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could get to that. I could get to 150. I, could do I that. mean, the Beastie Boys said they had more rhymes than Jacoby's got Myers, and I don't even know what number that counts for. So, uh, I do know that Boys to Men took us to the end of the road with, was this the song that was perched at number one for the longest of any song this year? Yes. And here again, we have an example of something where the change in chart methodology makes chart records possible. Boys to Men's End of the Road, taken from the Eddie Murphy romantic comedy Boomerang, which generated several hits, uh, spent 13 weeks at number one. Girl, you know we belong together. I'll have no time for you to be playing my heart like this. You'll be mine forever, baby. You just sleep. We belong together. And you know. That is a remarkable number because no record in Hot 100 history since the Hot 100 launched in 1958 had spent that many weeks at number one. To be very specific, in Hot 100 history, 10 seemed to be the limit. A couple of records, uh, Debbie Boone's You Light Up My Life in 1977 and Olivia Newton-John's Physical in 1981 and 82 had spent 10 weeks at number one. According to Billboard, the actual rock era record was held by a song that went to number one just prior to the launch of the Hot 100, namely Elvis Presley's double-sided hit, Hound Dog and Don't Be Cruel, which was number one for 11 weeks. It became a moot point whether we were talking about pre-Hot 100 or post-Hot 100 when Boys to Men spent 13 weeks at number one and just obliterated the record. This record, oh. as you will soon see, did not last for very long. They, they held it for all of a few months. But this is kind of a traditional, pleading, girl, I'm on my knees begging for you, classic ballad written by Babyface, who was at the absolute peak of his powers as a producer and singer and songwriter. And uh, it's kind of a, an R&B classic to this day. There is an outfit called The Heights, which I believe was a TV show called The Heights, that asked the musical question that doesn't technically end in a question mark in the title. How do you talk to an angel? I've always wondered. Yeah, now The Heights were a weird, weird phenomenon. They were a fake band. Think the Archies in the 60s. Or the Monkees, for that matter, although, frankly, the Monkees were a much more real and permanent band than the Heights ever were. They were a band created for an American TV series. And the really crazy part, this is what makes them different from either the Archies or the Monkees, is that the Heights was a, a massive TV flop. It only lasted a couple of episodes on Fox TV before the show was canceled. And by the time How Do You Talk to an Angel, sung by cast member Jamie Walters, went to number one in uh, the late fall of 1992, the Heights was already off television. So the song completely outlasted the TV show and it is barely remembered as even being a TV soundtrack hit. It's a true anomaly among number one hits. 
It's interesting because the premise of the Heights is that you have this really successful or somewhat successful singer and we watch him as he and his band tries to make it and viewers did not find it believable and yet they did have in real life a number one single. That's how bad the TV show was. They actually had a number one single and no one would believe that they were or cared that they were supposedly a successful band. Well, and in terms of trend, it didn't hurt that this was a wishy-washy torch ballad. Ballads did really well in 1992. I mean, accepting records like Jump and Baby Got Back, we've got a lot of ballads all over the charts this year. In fact, How Do You Talk to an Angel went to number one for two weeks in the middle of a long run of ballads from This Used to Be My Playground through End of the Road and through the final song of 1992. Which is... I Will Always Love You. Maybe you've heard of it. Written by Ms. <laughs> Dolly Parton, originally recorded by Dolly back in 1974, uh, re-recorded by Dolly and taken to number one a second time on the country charts in the early 80s from her movie The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, and finally covered by the Titanic vocalist and brand new actress, Ms. Whitney Houston, for the soundtrack to the movie The Bodyguard. So Boomerang and The Bodyguard, those two movies produced the two longest lasting hits of 1992. End of the Road, to refresh your memory, spent 13 weeks at number one on the Hot 100. And I Will Always Love You went to number one just after Thanksgiving 1992 and stayed there for 14 weeks. So almost immediately, Boys to Men's record was broken. And Whitney Houston lasted so deep into 1993 that I Will Always Love You was actually the number one song of 1993. So I don't know how you would exactly characterize it. I've seen lists of greatest guitar solo or greatest lyrics. But to me, uh, I know in electronic music, they have this concept of the drop. The chorus, just the chorus of that song coming in starkly as it does is the most, you can't find a more arresting, compelling, attention-grabbing moment in the history of pop music, I would say. Yeah, I can't think of too many other moments, certainly on a number one hit. Also, the way the song was arranged by producer David Foster was designed for maximum impact, including something that David Foster at first didn't like. You may recall that the song opens with Whitney singing a cappella with no Mm. instrumental backing at all. If I should stay I would only be in your way. David Foster didn't like that at first, and it was pushed to him by not only Houston, but uh, her co-star Kevin Costner. Um, And I believe, you know, Svengali and, uh, you know, label president Clive Davis as a spine tingling moment. Frankly, it's my favorite moment in the record is the very beginning when she's singing acapella and very quietly. You rarely hear that on any hit bound record, including a ballad. Uh, And it's it's an incredible moment because then, to your point, when we get to the final you know, drop out of all the instruments and the silence and the big boom and the end, uh, it hits that much harder. Uh, so to go from a quiet acapella passage at the beginning to this explosive belt out in the middle of the record, it, it really is kind of an exceptional record. In
And unlike the heights which viewers didn't buy, the idea of Whitney Houston as a transcendent diva, somehow that did strike audiences as believable, and it was a really successful movie, too. It made over $100 million at the box office. Uh, let's just say it, it was good casting. I mean, Whitney is basically playing a thinly veiled parallel universe version of herself. Um, Kevin Costner, folks may not remember this, but Kevin Costner was the hottest actor in America in the early 90s between movies like Robin Hood and Dances with Wolves, which he won the Oscar for. So Kevin Costner's at the height of his fame. Whitney Houston is relatively close to the height of her fame coming out of the 80s. And uh, it was just a bankable combination. And I Will Always Love You was the ultimate legacy of that combination. Well, Chris Malamphy is an expert on the charts, the music charts, not necessarily the movie charts. There's only so much that one brain can accommodate, and I can't believe all the music information in Chris's brain. He's a chart analyst, pop critic, host of the Hit Parade podcast, and writes, why is this song number one? Excellent to do it, Chris. 1992 in the books. Let's do it again soon. Let's absolutely do it again soon, Mike. Thanks a lot. And that song you're hearing was not a number one. It was a number six, Nirvana's biggest hit. But it seems wrong to do a year in music in 1992 without it, so we put it in there. Chris will be back to do another year. Send us a suggestion of which years you'd like to hear. Send to the gist at mikepesca.com or to our Reddit page. And that's it for today's show. I am so thankful for assistant producer Corey Wara for being a source of positivity and creativity, and for lending us the opinions of his dad, an excellent focus group there. I'm extremely thankful for senior producer Joel Patterson, not just for producing this show, but for producing Not Even Mad, new episode out now. I'm so thankful for so many reasons for Peachfish COO Michelle Pesca, not the least of which is she introduced me to the co-host of my Saturday show, Layla the Cat. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. Thank you, AdvertiseCast, for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. I'm really thankful, sincerely thankful, for all of you, the listeners. Have a great Thanksgiving. And oomperu, jeeperu, dooperu. And, oh yeah, this is what I always say. Fits right in with the theme. Thanks for listening.